Last 5% Media. I'm Joseph Radota, the creator and host of the podcast Hillside, the investigation and trial of the Hillside Strangler. Shortly after I released the podcast, I reached out to B Street Theater in Sacramento, California. I've enjoyed a great relationship with this theater company. They presented my play, Chessman, and hosted a stage reading of my play, The Gene Dixon Effect. I wanted to come up with a way to expand upon the Hillside podcast, share some video I had collected over the past three years, go behind the scenes, answer some of the questions I've received since the podcast went live. My producer, Caitlin Bruce, and I came up with an evening we call Hillside Live. KCRA anchor Edie Lambert moderated the discussion at the Sophia, the home of the B Street Theater in downtown Sacramento. A special guest joined us, Jim Mitchell, who covered the case for KFWB Radio and the local CBS News affiliate in Los Angeles. Let's go now to Hillside Live and our moderator, KCRA anchor Edie Lambert. Welcome. Thank you all for being here. Can't see too well, but how, just a show of hands, who remembers this case as it was unfolding? Yeah, uh, quite a few. I, I remember it um, as a little kid. I grew up in Orange County, which was the Los Angeles media market, and I was younger than the youngest victim, but I remember that the victims were still relatable. I mean, the youngest one had braces and loved Sean Cassidy, and that was pretty much exactly me. And when I was asked to be part of tonight's presentation, I really couldn't remember a lot of the details of this case, but what I totally remember was the fear. And I remember, I mean, it was the 70s and 80s, so we were still kind of, you know, free reign kids, uh, free range kids, and um, being out at dusk or even a little later in my neighborhood. And when the coverage of this case started, I remember I would start when I was walking through my neighborhood when the streetlights came on. As I was walking, I would look for my shadow so that I could see if another shadow came up behind me, I could run. I remember that feeling. Um, it's something I still actually do sometimes today if I'm feeling unsafe in a certain area, but it started because I was afraid of the hillside strangler. Once I was preparing for tonight's program, before I listened to the podcast, I went online and just tried to familiarize myself with the case, and it's so horrific. And a new fear, I think, kind of emerged for me with that research and then Joe's podcast, which fortunately focuses much less on the graphic details. But yet, um, now I'm the mother of a 12-year-old child, again, the same age as the youngest victim. Um, and it's just a reminder that these two, one of, one, one of them is dead, one of them is still locked up, but it's a reminder that monsters exist, monsters are real, um, we never know. It's a reminder you could brush by these people. You saw, you know, in the opening video, um, you know, especially Bianchi just looks like a normal guy. And um, I, I feel like the issues 
that are raised and the fear that it's reminiscent of are as um, relevant today as they were 40 years ago, absolutely. And um, so it's really um, my honor to be part of this. I think it's a really important conversation to have. And I'd like to bring up our main uh, guest today, Joe Wadota. Um, I love that he introduces himself in every single podcast as an opposition researcher. So everybody knows that about him, but there's a lot more to, to his uh, biography here. He has worked at the highest levels of federal, state, and local government, uh, especially in the political realm. Um, he was a writer and communications manager in the Reagan White House, a top campaign and government aide to Governors Pete Wilson and Arnold Schwarzenegger. He ran Rapid Response, the War Room, in the campaign against Prop 8, which is a, was a prop, as I'm sure you know, intended to ban gay marriage. Um, some really fascinating projects um, that he's been involved with, with a book on the Watergate Hotel, a play based on celebrity psychic Gene Dixon, a play focused on uh, Governor Pat Brown and the someday future uh, Governor Jerry Brown and the decisions that were being made about the death penalty. So with that in mind, it is my pleasure to introduce his latest project and introduce Joe with Hillside, the investigation and trial of the Hillside Strangler. Well, let's just start at the very beginning and you, you were essentially paid right. to, to look into this case at the beginning. So what, what were you looking for exactly? Well, so uh, an opposition researcher is sort of an unauthorized biographer of somebody's political opponent. And so yeah. I was hired by the campaign of then United States Senator Pete Wilson to uh, help him get prepared for the 1990 campaign. And the, uh, the leading Democratic candidate, the assumed, the presumptive nominee, was the sitting attorney general. And his name was John Vandekamp. And so in 1989-90, he was in his second term uh, as attorney general. And some people think that the initials AG stand for aspiring governor. Um, it really, it, you know, it's, it's very common, especially in California, and especially at the time, that uh, the attorney generalship is a stepping stone and the re to higher office. And one of the reasons is, and this is the 80s and the 90s, is that is an era where the politics and crime really were meshed. Uh, a lot of campaigns were fought over public safety. And so, uh, so my task was to look at this case which was for Vandekamp sort of in the rearview mirror. He had, you know, it had long it had been decided by the time he was uh, attorney general, and um, and so it was sort of the perception with the reporters was, uh, well, this is old news. You know, I, I, you know you're just going to recycle some garbage that had already been litigated. And so my my job was just like, what new could be said about John Vandekamp's role in this case. He was the district attorney in LA at, at the time um, and made a very, very controversial decision that he had somehow been able to distance himself from it. So I had to look at, well, what, 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 is, what was known at the time? What has he been saying? And then try to sort of say, is there anything new that can be brought to the table? Where's the vulnerability? Where's the vulnerability, right? 
And then it turned out he was taken out by Dianne Feinstein. Right. So all that research went where? Yeah, it, uh, yeah I, I didn't throw it away. I sent everything to an archive. Um, but uh, yeah, Dianne Feinstein, on the eve of the Democratic primary, runs an ad about Vandekamp's decision to drop uh, charges against the Hillside Strangler. And it is a really rough ad. And, um, and uh, he was probably going to lose by then. It, it was pretty clear, I think, that she was going to be the nominee. But he had kept punching at her. And so and I interviewed her campaign manager and uh, Diane Feinstein and her husband. They just basically, it was time for some payback. And uh, so the ad ran, and uh, that was the end of you know that was the end of Vanity Camp's political career, and in some extent the beginning of her sec second uh, political career. So it was also the end of this research being useful in that context for you. So what made you go back to it thirty years later? Well, um, I you know you mentioned in the introduction that um, uh, I have been working on a uh, the story of a, a guy named Carol Chessman who was, a, um, uh, was the most famous death row prisoner in the world when he was executed in 1960. And I got connected with some folks, a, a network in, L in LA, to pitch this uh, story of a Chessman for a podcast, because I really thought there was much more to say about Carol Chessman than I was able to say in a play. And, um, and I it was a phone call, but uh, they couldn't have been less interested. They were really, just seemed really, really bored. And so I was like, I'm like I'm. I'm getting a sense that this is not up on your, you know, in your shopping list. And you know, what are you really looking for? And they said, Oh, well, we're really interested in stories about LA, like from the '70s or something like that. And I said, Well, I actually know a lot about the Hillside Strangler. And then the call took a whole different, uh, different like, twist. Like, oh. They're like, Oh, yeah. So, uh, so that's uh, that's that conversation. There was a lot of interest right away. So I started working on it. And that was about three years ago. So going into it, you already knew a lot about this case, but were there questions that you were specifically hoping you could answer? Well, there was this sort of lingering question that might not be interesting to everybody, but it was still interesting to me. It was like, what really was going on when the district attorney decided to drop 10 murder charges against Angela Bono? Like what, I read, snippets and different reasons. So I thought, I'd like to know the answer to that, right? Yeah. Um, but then as I you know, dove into the story again, and you know, to some extent this was considered, you know, it's over. Like the guys went to, the guy went to jail, right? It's sort of settled. And, but there were 10 murders, but there were only nine guilty verdicts. And so that's what caught my eye when I went back to it. You know, why was it? Why was it only nine out of 10? Was that significant? Was it insignificant? And so that's one of the questions I set out to answer is to try to figure out why, why the jury split their decision. It's been an interesting journey as you were doing your own research. And I think you know one clue would lead to another. One interview led to another. What were the big surprises for you along the way? Well, um, it was interesting to uh, see, well, when I was doing the research, I would come across articles, and it would mention, you know, male detectives and the, you know, the men, the men who were prosecutors, and then it'd be just like one sentence, like, oh, and there was a, also was a, a woman who was briefly associated with the case. So there was all these sort of aside references. So um, 
you know, finding people who had, um, who had not been interviewed before. So for example, there was a, a woman named Elizabeth Barron who was uh, a model. She, started, she was a model in LA and then became a, a lawyer and a prosecutor. And she handled the most important pretrial motion, which was this question of whether um, uh, Kenneth Bianchi was in fact hypnotized. Because if he had been hypnotized, he would not be able to testify against his cousin. So that was, that was fascinating. And then also, um, uh, I was able to interview juror number one. So I, all these years later, to go inside the jury room was also was fascinating. And then, it, as I mentioned in the video, um, while I'm working on this, uh, uh, a woman, uh, Dr., Dr. Lois Lee, had connect, connected me via email to a woman named Mika. And she is the daughter of Yolanda Washington, who was the victim I was most interested in. The first victim. The first victim, right. And I knew about her. She was on my list. You know, we had a system where you know, any name we would come across, we would capture it, put it in a Google Doc, try to figure out where, were they alive or dead, where were they. So I knew the name, but, but you know, she was two and a half at the time her mother was killed. So I'm, like, I'm thinking, like, well, not the highest priority, you know, but because uh, what, what could she tell me? She's only two and a half. Well, it turned out she told me incredible things, or incredible things. She really was so much the heart and soul of this podcast. Right. She's, she, she's very courageous. You know, it's, un, it's hard, and these stories are so tough and to, uh, sometimes they're tough to read, they're tough to listen to, and it was so, so surprising to see a protagonist, you know, and sort of a classical protagonist, somebody who's on a journey needs to find something, needs to get someplace, and to be able to follow her as she goes through through that journey to try to understand what happened to her mother and what does that mean for her. And then, you know, in the end she's trying, she's really trying to connect to her mother. And she is, you know, in a course of many, many hours of interviews, she tells me how, how she goes on that journey. There were so many times listening to the podcast that I just wanted to reach through and just give her a hug. Um, one of the questions that I, I had was that she says during the interview, no one talked to her about this when she was little or, or growing up. She never got to have those conversations. And as a result, she felt like she was in some ways stuck as that little girl. And she was kind of frozen in time emotionally with that. And I, I did wonder um, what it was like for her to ha finally have those conversations. And you said you talked to her for hours. W was that cathartic for her? Did, was she able to kind of make some peace with some parts of what she had been through? Yeah, that's the impression that she left with me, that she, she really had something she wanted to accomplish, that she wanted to correct uh, a misimpression that was left about her mom. She wanted to know more about her mom. Our first conversation, you know, I had no idea if I would ever, you know, ever meet her in person. It was a phone conversation. And I just answered every question that she threw at me. And, um, and, and, and then I asked her at the end of the call, I said, you know, will you, I'd like to, if you're interested, would you be willing to talk to me and record an interview? And you want to take a few days and, you know, think about it. She, says, she said, I don't need to think about it. I'll do it. And she was the last interview before the COVID shutdown. And she just, uh, she told the whole, her whole history. And she was, 
She was doing it not just for her, herself, but she was also talking about her mother for her mother's legacy. And then also, she told me she was doing this, uh, doing the interview for her son because she wanted her son to feel um, connected to uh, her mother. And uh, and it was, uh, you know, this is Yolanda was, um, you know, she she was labeled in the press as, consistently as a prostitute. And and in fact, there were all these other aspects to her. You know, she drops out of school to have Mika, but then she goes, she gets her GED, and she's. You know, she's she's the reason she's on the street at that moment is be, is in my view is because she met the wrong guy right. and he ruined her life. There was one of the one of the documentaries. Uh, one of the documentaries has a dramatization of Yolanda's abduction, and I really objected to it because they have Yolanda in a mini skirt and rhinestone heels, and she saunters up to a car and leans in and smiles and gets in the car. And it just enraged me because that's not what happened. You know, she was ambushed on a street in Hollywood by two guys posing as a cops. And she wasn't there, you know, because this was the career she had chosen. She was there, you know, really, really tough circumstances. And, you know, in her mind, she, that whole night, I know, I assume she was thinking about her daughter. So So it's, I wanted to correct, you know, that kind of impression that was left at the time. It, the impression you get in listening to the podcast is that um, had she had the time, she would have turned her life around. Yeah. That she, you know, she had gone to college and or started college. And I loved finding out that Yolanda's grandson is a college graduate with yeah. a degree computer in science. computer science, yeah. Yeah. and sure. um, that's pretty fantastic. I very much respected your choices, and it had to have been a very deliberate choice not to um, spend time with the graphic details of these of these crimes. I mean, as I said, I started out researching, and, and it, it, it's so gruesome, and it is so bad. Um, and I, my question is really, how to convey the evil that this case, um, you know, represents without going into that kind of detail. Right. Um, yeah, it was a deliberate choice. There's, uh, it, you know, there, there's, for true crime listeners, yeah, you know, they are exposed to a lot of violence, um, and, and, um, and I just dispensed with all that. It's just, it's, 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 I didn't think it was necessary. Um, I only talk about uh, the evidence that later is going to be in front of the jury. So the the intricacies of you know the impressions that were left on 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 the wrists and ankles and um, and then you know some fiber evidence. Um, and I remember when I started the project, uh, we were taking a, a joint family vacation. Um, we were all at Sea Ranch, my partner and our children, we were all at Sea Ranch for a weekend, and I was reading a book called The Five, uh, which was, came out of London. It's a really great book, and it's the biography, is by Hallie Rubenhold, and it's the biographies of the five women who were killed by Jack the Ripper. And if you're familiar at all with the Jack the Ripper case, it's very, very violent. And what she set out to do was to tell the story of these women and how they were misperceived at the time and why, and at the end of every chapter, all you got was uh, the moment where you know the woman turned a corner 
or just you know rested or you know or fell asleep, and that was it. And she didn't go there. And I and and I like that's I, you know I, that's the way to tell the story. Yeah. So what's your feeling? Actually, why don't we just um, use that as a transition to talk about the reason that this was why you did this particular documentary, and th th they were making the same choices that you right. were with the podcast. Right. So so we had some interest from uh, from different folks uh, in the story, um, as potentially adapting it into a documentary series. And I was always very clear up front. Look, you know, I, I gruesome's not going to work. You know, for me, I don't think it's the right. Approach and then also um, I didn't I didn't want to be part of something where yet again you know ten women are just little black and white photos on a grid and it's all all you know centered on the on the killers and you know what happened at one in fourth grade or what what was fifth grade like oh tell us about sixth grade next and and so the team from NBC made a really good presentation that this is this is the the way they really wanted to handle it a different way and they. Um, and it's the team uh, headed up by a really, really smart director named Alexa Danner. She was uh, director of a, of a, a show about uh, John Wayne Gacy. And what, what she did with this one is she took the, takes the viewer inside Kenneth Bianchi's mind and really shows uh, what, how a, what a manipulative personality, what a dishonest personality, sort, sort of focused on the mind games he was playing on people throughout uh, the trial. And, um, and so more, uh, I think the two shows, the podcast and the documentary complement each other really well. So if you're really interested in knowing more about the killer, you know, the podcast may, you know, maybe, you know, less, less of that yeah. and the documentary more, but done in a really uh, sensitive, very smart way. Let's take a look at that trailer in Los Angeles. Somebody or a team has been murdering girls. Lots of them. Everybody was really on edge and worried they could be next. Kenneth Bianchi is a suspect in several of the Los Angeles hillside strangler murders. Scary things were happening inside of me. He was claiming a split personality. He keeps saying, I killed those girls. I did. Tied him up, killed one, killed the other. If he had multiple personalities, why didn't I ever see one? He hatched this plan. I was going to replicate a murder, and I did it to make it look like he was innocent. And if Bianchi was a liar, he was trying to save himself. There was never any doubt in my mind that it was at least two suspects. I wonder where the other guy is. How did we know this? What you doing when you just going have to take my word for it? All right, and a lot of this, as you mentioned, does focus on the evidence and you know how they were caught, how they were convicted. Um, let's talk about why it was so tough to catch these guys. Well, um, they were really uh, meticulous uh, killers. Um, Angelo Bono, in particular, he uh, he was a, a, a car upholsterer. Um, and also a clean freak. He would constantly, he kept, you know, his place was immaculate, he was constantly vacuuming. And so they were, you know, very careful, make sure, it looks like they took extraordinary steps to make sure there was no evidence um, that, con that could connect them uh, to the women uh, when the women were eventually found. 
Um, this is also an era where there really is no DNA testing available. So you could, if you found uh, blood, you could find the blood type, but you couldn't match that blood to somebody's blood and say that's the person. You couldn't match semen to a person. You could only match semen to a blood type. Fingerprint databases didn't really exist. And then there's something else I was thinking about as I was sort of working on this was was security cameras. So um, if you went, I went, I went to a lot of these neighborhoods. I, I think I've been to I've been nine of the ten locations where the women were found, and probably ten of the ten locations where the women were abducted. So the only only place I didn't go was Angeles Crest Highway, so up in you know up in, in the mountains. Um, but now, if, if you know, so I'm standing in these neighborhoods, sort of getting a sense, you know, roughly, like the, you know, the time of day where somebody would have been found. Um, but all those houses have ring cameras now, right? So that if somebody had pulled up and dropped a, a, a body in your yard, you would have caught it on ring. Um, and and in, and at the abduction, you know, down, to, you know, a, a corner in Los Angeles, you know, would be there'd be multiple cameras, you know, in the gas station and and in front of the restaurant. Um, you know, for example, uh, Judy Miller was abducted from the parking lot in front of Carney's, which is this diner that's on Sunset Boulevard. Some of you may have seen it. Um, and of course, there's cameras in Carney's now, and there's cameras across the street. So, so that was, I, you know, all these factors made it, made these people, it was easy to operate invisibly. And then I also think, I think frankly, the freeways had, had some uh, aspect to it. So they, you know, they could move around quickly um, you know, prior to this, LA became the bank robbery capital of America because you could hit a bank and quickly get on the freeway and sort of evaporate. Then we had a bunch of serial killers and, after yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, so just connecting dots, uh, Bianchi commits two more murders in Washington right. State. That's where he's caught. They make this connection. Um, and through him, they find his cousin. And now we know that it's two. They've confirmed that it's two. Right. So. Um, so there were 10 murders from um, September, you know, October, excuse me, October through 1977 to February of 78, uh, 10 women in LA, and then everything goes quiet for almost a year. And in fact, the Hillside Strangler Task Force, you know, comes up with nothing. It was a failure. Um, they start, you know, unwinding it. You know, they've got nothing to show for it. And then Kenneth Bianchi, is arrested in Bellingham, Washington, which is a, a college town very close to the Canadian border. You, you've probably been there. I was born there. You were born there. Yeah. Okay. Um, I thought more San Juan Islands, but that was later, right? Long story, but okay. yes. <laughs> um, and um, and so he um, so what happens is the, so he he's working for a security firm, and he arranges uh, for two young women to house sit. A house that he uh, and he tells them we are installing a security system the next day, but we need somebody there overnight or just for a few hours. While you know, it's just always very vague, and, and it was a hundred bucks each, and don't tell anyone. So he said, don't tell anyone. Well, of course, the women told their parents, their boyfriends, etc. And so within hours of them missing, you know, all roads start leading to Ken Bianchi. Um, and so he is arrested within, you know, and, and, he's, and he's arrested on 
actually like shoplifting kind of thing. They have, they're holding him there. Um, and uh, one of the detectives, uh, Jim Geddes, opens the briefcase and sees, and there's paperwork and uh, IDs and driver's license connecting him to LA. And they don't have any idea that he's connected to anything. They just know they've got two, dead, two women at this point, either missing or just about to be found. And, and here's a guy who's in, been in town for maybe six months, nine months, or something like that. And he used to be in LA. So they're just following up. And it's on a weekend. And they happen to reach uh, somebody with the LA County Sheriff's Office. And the person who answered the phone had been working on the case. And so he sees the addresses, or hears the addresses that are read to him from Bellingham, and goes, like, this is unbelievable. And so within hours, people start connecting the dots. Yeah. So I want to ask, um, and then we'll, we'll talk about the news coverage of this, but we have two, two convictions here, but we still call it the Hillside Strangler. Right. Why is it not Stranglers? Well, um, at the time the, when the crimes are first um, occurring, it, it's, all the press is the Hillside Strangler. Nobody, nobody knows. The, the, the detectives have their suspicions, some of them almost immediately, that it is, it's likely that two men or two people are behind the crimes, but the public doesn't quite didn't quite told that yet, um, and so uh, so it's sort of the, the the killings sort of enter the popular lexicon in the singular, so hillside strangler, and then at the end of the day, um, you know, only one of them went on trial. So Angelo Buono is on trial for his role in the murders. Uh, his accomplice, his cousin Kenneth Bianchi, he's pled guilty, and so um, so there's that. And then, and so at the end, I also thought, in a, you know, in a way, these people sort of fused and became, you know, you know, one operated op as a unit. They operated as a unit, and so uh, I, that's sort of why I started. I started figuring, like, you know, it began and it began and end in the singular. So I thought that's where I would keep it. You know. This really did um, terrorize a huge region of Southern California. And it was, you know, the lead story on the nightly news, night after night. Let's roll a clip of what people would have seen during that time. Just this was the seventh day of Bianchi's frequently conflicting testimony from the witness stand. At first, he had said he could only remember a smattering of details about the murders, but his memory improved last week after Judge Ronald George hinted his plea bargain agreement might be in jeopardy. But Bianchi still insists he does not remember the actual strangulations and blames his earlier statements to the contrary on pressure from police and his own attorneys. As with the earlier verdicts, Buono showed little emotion as the juror's decision was read, although he did appear to shake his head slightly a few minutes later when the jurors announced the murders met a special circumstances requirement, making Bono eligible for the death penalty. Prosecutor Roger Boren said he was elated. And that was Jim Mitchell, who broke so many important details in this story in Los Angeles coverage, and I'm delighted to tell you that he joins us now for this conversation. As he is coming up, I would love to just tell you that he was a reporter in Los Angeles for KFB, KFWB All News Radio, and then a reporter for the local CBS affiliate. 
He was the most prominent reporter on the Hillside Strangler case, later the Night Stalker case, and so many other of the biggest stories in Los Angeles. In many ways, Jim really paved the way for reporters to come. Reporters who followed in his footsteps copied everything about him. They copied your style, your grit, your determination to break all of the important developments. Um, I can also tell you he is the winner of three Columbia DuPont Awards, nine Golden Mics, three Emmys, a lot of Associated Press Awards as well. Um, what he told me, the, the, the real importance of that is that as he was winning all these awards, they let him do whatever he wanted. So <laughs> that's the real benefit. <laughs> It's kind of hard to imagine this now, but one of the victim's body was found just a few blocks from Jim's house. And so your news station just said what? Like, just check it out on your way to work? or That's right. <laughs> okay. You know, they called me at home, and I usually called in the morning and, and to find out what was going on and where they wanted me to go. And they said, well, there's a DB up the street from you there. Why don't you go check it out? dead body. I said, okay, I'll do that. And in the city of the size of Los Angeles, there's dead bodies found all the time. You know, but one thing that made this unusual more was that it was found in the uh, front yard of a home. And uh, so that surprised me a bit. And I got out there to the scene, and uh, it was a young woman, 15-year-old girl by the name of uh, Judith Lynn Miller, and she was uh, uh, left in the front yard of this home, just discarded like that, and uh, uh, she was naked, and uh, it was a terrifying scene, really. I mean, it was a horrible scene, and I couldn't at that time know exactly what had happened to her, but I started my investigation right then and there, and uh, it was uh, quite an investigation before it was over. and. You know, we didn't have any idea at that point exactly what was going on with it. And uh, I turned to a friend of mine who was a, a sergeant in the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Office by the name of Frank Salerno, who turned out to be one of the principal investigators on this case. And I said, uh, what do you think about this, Frank? You ever seen anything like this before? He said, nope. I said, we're going to see more? He said, yep. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah, you just, you just had that feeling about this case, and you stayed on the story um, to the point where you knew so many details, it made him suspect. suspicious. <laughs> <laughs> you knew more about it than some of the cops. That's true. So how That's did you true. find out they were, they were investigating you? Well, actually what happened was uh, there was a, uh, a, a situation where the uh, chief of police in the town. There was a hiatus in the murders after a while, and there was about a six or eight week uh, break in the, in the killings. And uh, one of the reporters from the Los Angeles Times walked up to the chief of police and said, what's going on with the Hillside Strangler? And uh, they said, you know, the chief said, uh, I think we've scared him away. And uh, the people on the Hillside Strangler Task Force just 
absolutely swallowed their gum with that uh, because they su surprised uh, they were surprised by what he had to say and they thought that if anything was going to bring this guy out again that was going to be that it would sound like a challenge it would sound like a challenge yeah right and so he accepted the challenge yeah, yeah and accepted the challenge and uh, so basically uh, at that point uh, the police swarmed all over the hillsides on the outskirts of uh, Los Angeles where these murders were occur the bodies were being deposited and uh, they uh, essentially uh, went into overdrive and I got done with some of these detectives who were looking around police officers and so forth and uh, they started asking me about the case and I was telling them about the case and I had all these details about the case and I had charts and graphs and all this stuff you know and I was explaining to them what was going on with these murders and they became suspicious of me and reported me the, to the task force. <laughs> yeah, fortunately you had an alibi so. Fortunately you know. I had an alibi, alibi for a couple of the murders and so I was able to get off. So Joe walked us through, they catch Bianchi up in Bellingham. Yes. And you get a call from a mm -hmm. Seattle TV station. Right. And the same thing that happened with the police department happened with me. He called and said, we've got this murder up here and yeah. I've got these murders up here in, uh, in Bellingham, Washington. This guy's supposed to be from the LA area. And could you do me a favor and look into it? That was on a Sunday, and so on that Monday morning, I started making some calls. And one of the first calls I made, just as the LAPD did, was to uh, the Department of Motor Vehicles. And I got two addresses from them. And so I drove over there and uh, knocked on the front door. And a guy by the name of Angelo Buono answered the door. And he said, yeah, what do you want? And I said, you know a guy named Angela and named Kenneth Bianchi. He said, uh, yeah, he's my cousin. What do you do now? I said, well, uh, he's been arrested in, in Bellingham, Washington. He's been charged with a couple of murders up there. And Angelo was really upset. He was really upset. At this point, I mean, law enforcement was surveilling him. That's right. He didn't know it. Right. This is the first he's hearing of any of it, and yes. you're walking in his door with a camera. Yeah, walking in there with a the camera rolling, and and yeah, <laughs> yeah. So that was kind of exciting, but of course, <laughs> at the time I didn't have any idea just how much and how much involvement he had with the case, and uh, but it became apparent, you know, before too long, that he was very deeply involved in the case. So you had indicated that in some ways. You felt he was afraid of you as you were talking to him in that initial conversation. Yes, yes. How could you tell? He was very nervous. He was very nervous and uh, was upset that I was there. But I kept talking, kept talking, 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 you know. And cameras rolling? Cameras rolling, right, cameras rolling. And he got very upset about that. And, but he let us, he let us shoot. We shot him there at, 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 the, at the doorway, and then he went out into the shop and started working in the shop, and we went into the shop, 
and we shot some additional B-roll, as we call it in the TV business, of him working in this, working in this upholstery shop. And uh, went back to the station, put the story on the air, and the next thing I know, I got a call from Angelo Bono. He's like, you son of a bitch. I thought I, I, thought I told you I wasn't gonna do this and I wasn't gonna do that. He said, you, you asked me not to use your voice. And I said, I didn't use your voice, but I sure as hell used your pictures and you knew I was taking the video. So, you know, and he, you know, he, uh, uh, you know, and kind and of Jim, backed off like that. Why do you think he did not want his voice played? I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting reason. It's not a, an uh -huh. issue of guilt. He had a lisp. Yeah. He had a very pronounced lisp. And that just didn't fit his gangster image, you know. He, he saw himself as a, as a gangster. He was from back east and uh, in Rochester, New York, and saw himself as a tough guy. And uh, the idea that he had a lisp, I guess, just was uh, something that he disguised or tried to disguise quite a bit. And, uh, but he wasn't successful with me. So your son Paul's here in the audience and remembers Bono calling your house yes. from prison. Yes. What did he? Yes. What did he want? He was constantly calling, and uh, this was after uh, after I had interviewed him. He uh, passed a note to me through a bailiff in the middle of his murder trial, saying that he wanted to talk to me, and so I went down to the uh, county courthouse and and uh, interviewed him. And it was a kind of a, the first time I'd ever find myself interviewing somebody in the, in the middle of their murder trial. But uh, yeah, we talked, uh, we talked quite a bit, and he didn't tell me a whole lot, but uh, I kept him talking all the time. And he started calling me at home, because uh, I'd given him my home number. And uh, one time, <laughs> One time, my wife answered the phone, and she, you know, and he said, uh, said you know, uh, "I want to talk to Jim." She said, "Well, he's not here at the minute. There's something I can help you with." And they got into a conversation, and uh, I got home, and and my wife said, uh, uh, "Your friend Angelo called." <laughs> I said, "Really?" I said, "Oh, what do you have to say?" said, oh, he's such a nice man. Oh. I sure, I just love talking to him. He was asking me all these questions about myself and this and that and the other thing, you know. I said, he didn't ask you what you were wearing, did he? <laughs> <laughs> said, no, no. I said, well, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it was, it was uh, quite an experience uh, for her, you know. So and, I had some, uh, somewhat of an experience like that. So I had reached out to Kenneth Bianchi um, through a system called JPay, which is the official email channel for, um, for prisons, right? And I put in requests, just simply introduced myself. I said, at some point, I'd like to talk to you. And um, you know, here's what it's about, just, you know, just to have the marker in. And, and then I'm on the sofa, and I get a, my uh, notification on my iPhone, and it says, you have a message from your loved one. <laughs> it's JPay, 
you know, message from Kenneth Bianchi, and then I was like, <laughs> <laughs> because the system is assuming yeah. it's all loved ones, yeah. you know, and I'm like, well, so actually we're not that close. Um, <laughs> no. Um, and so that's, you know, so, uh, and I had, I had several months of back and forth with them, which really led nowhere, and mm. I just moved on, you know. Yeah. What was the nature of it? I mean, obviously you were looking for an interview. Well, yeah, I was looking for an interview, and 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 he was, you know, he was, you know, what what is a podcast, and why, you know, and then the next thing you know, I get start getting emails from somebody else, and what he's done is he's shared our conversation with somebody else, who then starts peppering me with demands and questions, and you know what, you know what, well, can my Ken would cooperate if I were involved, and of course I could help, you know. And I was just like, you know, this isn't, this is not going to happen. And so um, just sort of moved on. And then, and then, you know, like a year later, he, he emailed me out of the blue and he described the weather and the prison, and, and it was a sunny day, and and I, and I was thinking about checking in on you, and you know, what do you, and how's your project going? And I said, it's done. It's 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 done. It's complete. And he, Don't need you now. What is what? You know, and then and that was and then blocked me. He blocked me. And <laughs> I was no longer his loved one. Um, oh and, dear. But the way that system works is uh, once you're blocked, uh, erases everything. So it's not like it's not like you know your Google Mail. You can keep it forever. And I so but I I was printing as I went along. So but uh, yeah, that was the end of that. Mm. You know, I have a question for both of you, and that is um, you were both so immersed in this really horrible series of crimes. Um, and I'll start with you. How, how did it affect you? I mean, you were, it, this, you were living and breathing this for years. Yeah, it was, uh, I'm sort of an obsessive guy to begin with, you know. So it makes and, you a good reporter. Yeah, and uh, it really affected me quite a bit. It affected my marriage, it affected my relationship with my kids, it affected everything in my life. And I was going 12, 18 hours a day. Uh, spent a lot of time on the Hollywood Boulevard, spent a lot of time learning about the lifestyle there, you know. And uh, it was quite an eye-opener for me. And there were just thousands, it seemed, of children. I call them children, but I mean they were like 14, 15 years old. Uh, and they'd all gravitated to Sunset Boulevard because that was supposed to be the hot spot. They're gonna go to Hollywood, you know, runaways for the most part. And, uh, you know, their lives were, oh, they, they were just taken advantage of, you know, in, in a variety of different ways, uh, sexually, yeah. you know, and uh, it was a it was a terrible lifestyle for them. A lot of drug abuse going on with them, and uh, that was kind of like the milieu of uh, the people who were involved in this case initially, you know. And uh, it was a it was a tough road to hoe. Yeah, it's really dark. Yeah. You know that 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 whole realm of what you were investigating and then the crimes themselves which were really horrific mm -hmm. and joe i mean you went through all the autopsies yeah um i took all the autopsy reports and as i located somebody who worked in the coroner's office at the time uh he's retired now in sonora and so i went down um to the house 
and we just spent hours just going through you know every single one of them and he was explaining every page and it was very kind of him to do that because this isn't your profession you don't know what some of this stuff means and I just you know it was it was a hard day and it was um, I ended up not using it because you know I, I decided that we you know weren't gonna that's not the story how are we gonna tell the story um, but um, you know of course I've seen it all right and you know the and, and I've seen a lot of the photos and to see the photos of the house and everything um, you know that, that were saved by one of the prosecutors it, it's 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 jarring yeah it's jarring and so when I would talk to somebody you know who was really close to one of the victims and you could just hear in their voice how grateful they were to have the chance to talk about their friend you know I just that that was that those rules were, those were good days you know and that mm -hmm. comes through so clearly in your work mm -hmm. um, you did have a chance to interview juror number one Pen, Penny Stanley who said that it was really hard for her to remain neutral as a juror. She had to work hard at it because she said when she looked at Buono, she felt he was creepy, felt he was icy cold. And you covered this whole trial as well, mm -hmm. going into it knowing every detail of, of all of these crimes. Was it hard for you to remain neutral? Yeah. And uh, Angela Bono was, Bono was definitely creepy and icy cold. You know, definitely, and uh, Kenny Bianchi was uh, nuts. He was totally out to lunch. Uh, I met his mother, and uh, I spent a longest 45 minutes of my life in her house, and she just ran me up one side and down the other uh, during those 45 minutes, and by the time I left there, I was a wreck. And she just, and I thought, now I understand. Now I understand how Kenny ended up the way he did. Uh, she just was, you know, one minute she'd be saying, "Oh, my Kenny, my Kenny, I don't know why are you why are you to keep telling all these terrible stories about him." And then she'd turn around and get out of my house, you know. And I'd start start leading. She'd say, come back here, you know. And it was just back and forth like that for forty five minutes. Wow. And. Uh, yeah, finally, I just had to get out of there, you know. But uh, now she was a nutcase, and uh, I thought, whoa, I understand a little bit about what this guy went through when he was growing up. She was constantly taking him in and out of school. She changed schools uh, for him about six or seven times, as I recall, in elementary school, in elementary school, and uh, she just, you know. Constantly getting into fights with the teachers and with the with the principals and everybody else at the schools, you know, she didn't want anybody telling her that her son wasn't the most brilliant person that ever walked the face of the earth. And Joe, you know, as a, as a former opposition researcher, um, you're so good at this research, and it did make me wonder if you feel a sense of kinship with the detectives, the investigators, maybe even the prosecutors. Um, yeah, I, um, it, uh, there was actually this actually happened in 1990 when um, I was working on the case the first time and starting to collect things, and um, I made an appointment to go out to Tulsa, Oklahoma, where uh, where one of the professors in the English department, his name was Darcy O'Brien, and he wrote the book 
on the case. And so I, I flew out there and I had all of my questions and all the things that I had unearthed. And he was l listening to me and he said, I don't know how much this opposition research pays you, but you ought to think about going into true crime. <laughs> uh, but no, it's, you know, part of it is, um, uh, you know, this looking, you know, constantly looking, digging, organizing, trying to figure out where's the story here. Um, I had the benefit of things that Dar Darcy's no longer with us, but, but I had things that he didn't have access to. So for I have all of uh, Kenneth Bianchi's psychiatric records and because some of them were um, retained by one of the psychiatrists who interviewed him um, in Bellingham. So I had all of that. Um, I had his complete prison file, his transcripts from his parole hearings. Um, and then also, in a kind of in a surprise, um, uh, the family of Daryl Gates gave me two shopping bags full of Daryl Gates. Daryl Gates was the LAPD chief of police, and he prior to that was the head of the Hillside Strangler Task Force. And he has a, a, a mention in his memoir about the case. Well, they had saved his files. And so I have Daryl Gates's files um, mm -hmm. from, from the case, handwritten notes you know, to himself saying, we need to do this next, and we need to do this next, we need to do this next. And then handwritten grids of victims and what we minute by minute kind of what they know about each as they're trying to piece it together. And, and all the transcripts, you know, Jim was in, attended some of the press conferences, but, and the, the tapes are long gone, but I had every transcript, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so it's really, there's really, a, you know, but so when I would find these things, it was, you know, just exciting, you know, frankly, to find these things. Um, but uh, yeah, I come, I come at it as um, the oppo research did come in handy. Some notes you did not have access to would have been Jim's because you tossed them. Um, yeah. People had, had recommended maybe you make a book out of this. Why did you decide not to do that? Why did you dump all your notes? I couldn't see any redeeming social value to it. And I was disgusted with the case. I was disgusted with what happened to these girls. I was disgusted with, with Bianchi and, and Bono. And I just wanted nothing more to do with it. And that's the way I was for some time. And uh, it was a hard case for me emotionally, you know, very hard. We'd love to take some uh, questions from the audience. Does anyone want to come up with any questions? There's a microphone. Yeah, we're recording the audio, so come on up to the microphone. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about the prosecutorial decision? And um, Oh, the you know, Vandekamp decision? Yeah. Oh, OK, yeah. Um, so. Uh, so Van Camp's office, this is the district attorney's office, so they filed uh, 10 murder counts against Angelo Bono. And um, Bianchi, Kenneth Bianchi is, is just, they didn't consider him uh, eventually a, a star witness, but he was a key witness. He was a very important witness, but he was a very unreliable witness. He had multiple explanations for everything. And so when, when you think he, when the prosecutors and the cops were thinking he was trying to help them, he would slip in um, incorrect information into his confessions. And, and so it was all garbled. And, and, and he took the stand, and he was just a mess in the preliminary hearings. And so the two prosecutors in the district attorney's office basically gave what up. They said, we can't do this, and it's not going to work. 
and wrote up their reasons and, and went to their boss, John Vandekamp, and said, we recommend dropping the charges. And, um, and this is where it gets murky, right? So uh, Vandekamp later says that he uh, had turned the recommendation over to two ex other experienced prosecutors to look into this, and they said that was actually not true. Uh, he did. Daryl Gates urged him to to look at this himself. the The evidence is there. It can be Bianchi is a bad witness, but you have bad witnesses all the time. There's corroborating evidence. Take you need to get involved personally, and Vandekamp did not appears not to have done that. Um, and so, uh, so he uh, he allows his office to. Uh, file a motion in the court to drop 10 murder charges. And the cops are just aghast. Everybody's just aghast. The victims' families, it's just appalling, right? And a week later, Judge Ronald George, who is the judge in the case, comes back and he says, no, I don't think, I don't think that's going to further the public interest. There, there's enough evidence here. There's an unreliable witness, but that happens often. And in fact, I read the decision. I interviewed the judge about it. So this is not uh, an, an abnormal. It's not a common, but it's, it, it happens. And so he says to Vandekamp, uh, Vandekamp's office, the prosecutors, you know, you, if you can't prosecute the case, turn it over to the attorney general's office and let them take it, or I'll appoint a special prosecutor. And it was really a shock. And in my files from 1990, I actually have a press release that the district attorney's office had put out anticipating that the judge would okay the decision. I said, praising, oh, the, the John, John Vandekamp today praised Judge George for his foresight in this, and this, was, this, is gonna, this is the right decision, and we applaud the judge. And that, of course, that press release never got issued because that is not what the judge ended up doing. And there were two things that happened after that that I think were, were a little shocking to me. One was um, the memo suddenly shows up at, about how weak the case is, suddenly shows up in the LA Times. And, and so the Attorney General staff, which is now handling the case, is like, well, thanks for that. You know, like that's a, it was appalling, right, to see Suddenly, in the Times is the case that the that district attorney would, would not prosecute. They just put in all the weaknesses right there in the LA Times. And then the second thing that happened is when Vandekamp's office sends over the files to the new prosecutors, the files were a mess, just a complete disorganized mess. And, and it was sort of a, you know, they took it as a FU, you know, from the district attorney's office and, um, um, and didn't appreciate it. Did you feel like Vandekamp sabotaged? That, yeah, that was that's the impression that they were left with, and that he, um, um, and you know, of course, they go on these these the, the prosecutors uh, at the uh, attorney general's office go on and win these convictions, and then you know, and, and can I just jump in? At the time, Vandekamp was attorney general. Right. So it's a little complicated, but Vandekamp at this point is their boss, right? And he, they're prosecuting a case that he tried to abandon, you know, years at before. At the city level. At the city, the county level, right? County, county level, yes. right. Yeah. And so you would think that the smart political thing is just take credit for it, you know? And he couldn't. He, I really think uh, Vandekamp thought that this was a weak case, that, that the attorney general's office was going to lose this, and he did not want to be associated with a loser. 
and he wanted to just keep it away from it. And I think he was stunned that they got their nine convictions. Mm -hmm. and, and, and then when the convictions come through, Bandicamp and his top aides attempt very you know, awkwardly a damage control operation to try to get these prosecutors to misrepresent what happened and to say, oh, well, there was new evidence that came up, and that's why we got the conviction. And these guys said, absolutely not. And one of them says, if you want me to say that, I will resign on the spot. And he backed off. Jim, what was it like for you covering this? I mean, first of all, a motion to dismiss would have been yes. big news. Yes. And then I've never heard of a judge denying a motion to dismiss. And in, in my career, I haven't seen that. Judge Ronald George had his own agenda. And he was looking forward to moving up through the judicial system. Which he did. Which he did. <laughs> he became an appellate court judge and then moved on to become chief justice of the California State Supreme Court. And that isn't to take anything away from him. He was an extraordinarily uh, astute jurist. And I was thrilled just to be in a courtroom with this guy. But uh, there's no doubt in my mind that, uh, that he wasn't going to let this case drop. Other questions? Okay. Um, I know that Kenneth Bianchi, he like claimed to have like split personality disorder. Did anyone ever like pin any sort of validity on that, or was it just kind of dismissed as him being like manipulative and trying to shift blame? That's a really, really good question. And we and I, I spent a lot of time in the podcast on questions of multiple personality and also the question, the other related question, which was hypnosis, um, and. Um, I, I had, Jim got to meet Mother Bianchi, um, mm -hmm. Francis. I got to listen to 50 hours of Kenneth Bianchi being interviewed by six different psychiatrists in 1979. And, um, and so what, what, what they're, they're sort of related. The hip, so Bianchi asserts that uh, under hypnosis, he revealed that he had a mult, had more than one personality and in fact the key second personality was somebody named Steve and Steve would take over Ken's body and and he Steve and Angelo would go out and kill people so that was basically the structure of Bianchi and he he had uh, he spoke with six psychiatrists and they kind of had mixed conclusions but he definitely had two psychiatrists who believed that believed that and you know, fought for him all the way through. And the judge eventually, this, go, this goes to, to, um, uh, to court, the judge eventually concludes that Bianchi, in fact, was not hypnotized, that he faked the hypnosis. And there's, in the, in the podcast, you'll hear a guy from the East Coast, Dr. Martin Orn, there's a great, there's a great moment where he says to Bianchi, he says, you know, I've been thinking about this, and it's very unusual that there's only two multiple personalities. Often it's more than two. It's like three or more, whatever. And let's talk tomorrow. And the next day, tomorrow, suddenly we, we got Billy. Billy's arrived. <laughs> so now we got three. So 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 he sort of busted. And then um, and then the and then you know once once he's not hypnotized, then the uh, it's clear that the claims you know changing himself into Steve and transforming himself in these interviews and Steve is basically an act. And, um, 
and he, um, uh, he's, the, the, this is a big part of the NBC docu-series. The tapes are there. You'll see him fall asleep and then suddenly, you know, uh, start acting, you know, differently. And the prosecutors told me that when they first saw the tapes, they were just laughing. They were like, oh my God, this guy's the worst actor ever. Jim, you know, 40 years later, why do you think people are still so interested in this case? Well, there's a variety of reasons for it. I think one of the reasons is that uh, the case went on for so long, you know, and uh, it involved some fascinating characters. You know, Kenny Bianchi is uh, still in prison. Angelo Bono has died, and uh, but Bianchi is still in prison up in Walla Walla, Washington, and uh, will no doubt die in prison. And uh, that's a good thing. And I think that uh, people are constantly fascinated by these kinds of cases, and I think that's another reason why this is just stuck in the public's consciousness for a number of years. Yeah, fear yeah. has a way of, of doing that. It's a stronger memory than a lot of other things. That's true. Um, and you know, I, Joe, at, at the end of all of this, you've done so much work. You've been working on this for years now, and the, the podcast and the documentary. What are you hoping that people take away from your work? I hope that people uh, are able to think from a different point of view and the point of view of the victims and um, and that they were you know, real people. They weren't just you know, a grid of nine, ten photos in a newspaper article or you know, on a board in a courtroom. Um, I, uh, I, I, I really worked hard to um, kind of change the perception that was left. Uh, first of all, some, there, for some of them there was no no impression left at all because they were just oh, here, you know, victim number five or something like that, and and so you know it was really important for me to um, you know see the story through uh, people who knew these women, uh, girls and women, the, the family members, friends, um, and then also um, to appreciate how. Uh, you know, it's easy to look back and say, well, you know, there was, you know, bungling or whatever, but it was a really, really hard case to deal with at the time. You know, you can't, you know, can't look at, you know, you know, what was, you know, the technology that was used to catch the Golden State Killer was so far beyond the possibility of what could be imagined at the time. So I had a lot of empathy for the people who were, you know, working the case and, and you know, one of one of one one of the interviews um, I did I, I was with Michelle Michelle Kessler, and she collected evidence and and she she said I needed to do this exactly right because that's how I could help her, and and so here's somebody who's lost you know she's already gone, but Michelle thought that if she did a perfect job collecting that evidence that she could help this person and. Um, and I and I, I thought you know the people who worked this case it affected you know Jim spoke to it but it affected everybody who was touched by this it's sort of the first case where it sort of changed the climate of L A you know Manson was so freakish and it was Sharon, it was Hollywood it was you know it was Sharon Tate 
it was so fast and so big, right? And not really relatable. And not really relatable. But this was five months, and it was you know, you know, young girls who didn't come back from a shopping mall, right? And um, and so it that when I talked to people, I said that was the moment when our parents said lock the windows. You know, that was the moment where we we couldn't go out after dark. And it really, you know, it was almost, it was oppressive and it stuck with people. Jim, I want to thank you for joining us here and not only for sharing your stories, but really a legacy of incredible work as a TV and radio reporter. Just, um, you know, those of us in my generation stand on your shoulders. So it's a real (laughs) pleasure to be up here with you. And Joe, thank you, Um, and most of all for the very human, empathetic approach that you took to this work. The last words in the podcast, she was a mother. I had tears rolling down my face. I appreciate, um, you know, the the work that you've done in this case. It's it's really um, put it in a completely different perspective and one that has been needed for all the years for four decades. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for being part of this and some great questions. And please, if you haven't listened to the podcast, please do. Please download it. Please subscribe. Uh, Tell all your friends that they should be listening to it too. It's some great work. Uh, Watch the uh, documentary on Peacock. And um, we just want to thank you so much for being here. Hillside is a production of Last 5% Media. This podcast was created, written, and hosted by me, Joseph Rodota. Our executive producers are Chris George and Joaquin Alvarado. Caitlin Bruce is our producer. Adam Mellion is our research director. Cheryl Duvall is our editor. Julie Checkaway and Robert Saladay served as consulting producers. Our sound engineers are Jeremy Dalmas and Craig Thomas. Craig is also our composer. Edgar Guerra designed our logo and website. Special thanks to the Center for Inquiry Libraries in Buffalo, New York, the Hoover Institution Archive at Stanford University, the Mainsfield Library at the University of Montana, and the Warnicke Ranch Artist Residency. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and give us a positive rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. For information about this episode, visit our website, hillsidepodcast.com. And thanks for listening.